Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're playing book 34 in the fighting fantasy series Stealer of Souls. It was written by Keith Martin with illustrations by Ross Nicholson and cover art by David Gallagher. Before we get into the episode proper, there's a couple of bits of business to attend to. Firstly, and most importantly, I have to thank a new patron, Lex Mandrake, who has a brilliantly heroic name. This is someone who's gone to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledged as little as a single English pound or local equivalent to support my nonsense. It's the support of patrons which keep this show on the air and all contributions are gratefully received. Thank you so much, Lex. Everyone who pledges on Patreon receives a bunch of my gaming material as a reward, including two game books and two complete role-playing games and a game book What My Partner Done Wrote. I'm also in the process of finalising a new role-playing game, Crown of Crimson, a game about insane cultists seeking martyrdom in a fantasy empire. The game is complete and I'm currently in the tedious stage of editing it where I try and turn my scribbles into a document that actually makes sense. I'm also in the very early stages of kicking about ideas for a new game book. The obvious thing to do is the second half of the story I began in Rats in the Cellar, but I've also been thinking about some ideas for a science fiction book. Now let's get back to Stealer of Souls. This is the first book written by Keith Martin, who would go on to contribute a whopping seven volumes to the series. He's quite an interesting figure, having written for both Games Workshop and TSR quite extensively. He contributed to the epic Enemy Within campaign for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and wrote for Greyhawk, possibly the least loved of Dungeons & Dragons' many campaign settings, which is a shame because I actually like it more than the Forgotten Realms. That's a setting which would come to dominate the game, a game world so actively bland that it makes me feel slightly irritable just thinking about it. As well as writing gaming material, Martin was also a parapsychologist for a time, which is kind of interesting, and sadly died in 2018. I'm very much looking forward to seeing this first attempt at a fighting fantasy book, and it's going to be really interesting to see how his books evolve over time. In terms of the illustrations, Russ Nicholson is obviously a safe pair of hands for fighting fantasy at this point. His pen and ink style is a perfect fit for the series' prevailing aesthetic of the slightly grubby and also darkly surreal. I didn't think I'd played this one as a child, but as soon as I started flipping through the illustrations, I realised that no wait, I definitely had. I just can't remember a single thing about it. That might not be an indication of quality. My autobiographical memory is shockingly poor. Indeed, it's a testament to the power of Nicholson's work that was able to instantly spark recognition across a gulf of both time and excessive consumption of red wine. The David Gallagher cover is fine. There's hardly any genuinely poor covers in the series for me, and this one is a solid depiction of an evil-looking rogue figure with a knife and a see-through rat. I quite like that see-through rat. That creates a sense of intrigue. 
In terms of system, I'm delighted to report that this is vanilla fighting fantasy through and through. Skill, stamina, luck, provisions, leather armour, sword, lantern, and just go for it. There's no magic nor any secondary systems, and honestly, I'm totally down with that after Skylord. The back cover suggests that we're in traditional kingdom in peril from yet another Dark Lord territory, which suggests we're in for maybe a bit of a meat and potatoes adventure, which I'm also totally fine with. I do feel like the best fighting fantasy books are the ones which shy away from the grandiose in favour of slightly smaller scale adventures, because I think they have a more resonant emotional tone. But I'm not going to quibble here because I'm just so pleased to be embarking on a classic fantasy quest. I have dishonestly rolled up a character who I have decided to call Savlon von Arquebus because that sounds like a properly heroic name to me. They have a skill of 11, a stamina of 20 and a luck of 12. With a backpack stuffed with delicious stab wound healing food, let's dive into Stealer of Souls. Background. Vanestin of Palua, a mage. You don't know him, but he has requested your presence, and his messengers were gracious. They had even made all the arrangements, coach fares paid, money for meals and indulgences along the way. Whatever it is that he wants, he knows how to treat a valiant warrior. And now that you are with him, you can see from his beautiful home that he is a man of means and, surely, of power and influence. After greeting you, he has breathed simply one word to begin his proposition to you. A name. There are a lot of ellipses in this opening section, which I've done my best to pronounce. Um, does seem to very much like a dot dot dot. So that paragraph ends with a dot dot dot. The next paragraph begins with a dot dot dot. His origins may be unknown, but his is a name whispered in dark places, and it has come to your ears before. Mordraneth. Dark mage, man of guile and cunning, one who has mastery of arcane secrets shunned by good magicians, a dealer in death and destruction who smiles as he slays. The elves have spoken of him with fear, and you have drunk Skullbuster, that fearsome brew, with a grizzled dwarf veteran who slapped you on the back with the only arm he had left after an encounter with Mordraneth. You weren't certain what to expect from the man who uttered his name simply to test your reaction, but you weren't expecting this. You keep your reactions to yourself as he gazes at you. You take the time to study him. Vanistin is a powerful man, tall and strong, lean and still young, not what you might have expected in a wizard. You sit in his sumptuous chamber, overlooking the harbour in Palua, sipping his fine wine. You raise your eyebrows at the name, but say nothing. Vanistin looks hard at you and then proceeds with his story. Annoyingly, Vanestin's been described as young and strong, meaning that I cannot do the old man voice that I basically do for every single wizard. You've heard of him, of course. A servant of evil and chaos, a mage of no mean skill, and possessed of a fiendish cunning. To defeat his purpose, we need your skill and courage. If you will accept the task I offer, 
Now he stops pacing the room, sits down and his voice has a keener edge to it. Two weeks ago, agents of Mordraneth kidnapped a wizard here, Alsander, who was occupied in magical research into Mordraneth's schemings. I last saw Alessandra a few days before he disappeared, and he was excited and worried then. He warned me that Mordraneth was using magical energies to draw power in some way from the realms of the dead, and he urged me to consult with him when he had had a little more time to study the problem. Alas, when I called upon him, he was gone, with all his notes. But by magical scrying, we have found where Alsander is, and he is still alive. Your task is not as desperate as you may have thought when I spoke Mordraneth's name. We do not require you to slay him. We need you to bring Alsander back to us. He pauses to offer you more wine, and he sees that you are a little disappointed. What a scout Mordraneth would be to boast about! Vanestin is quick to counter that. If you can rescue Alsander, you may gain the knowledge and power to overcome Mordraneth himself. I can't think of anyone more capable to undertake it. You smile at his flattery. Interested? He hardly needs your nod. I'm enjoying the uh, psychological depth that's been put forward in this introduction. The dynamic between us and the wizard is an interesting one, and I always like it when the protagonist is depicted as being motivated as much by fame and glory as by the desire to do genuinely good deeds. I think that resonates more strongly with the role-player in me. Mordraneth has tried to fool us, but for once his ruse has failed. From our spies we know that the evil one is in Alansia, but we have also discovered that Alsander is imprisoned elsewhere. Mordraneth expects us to come for him in the belief he has Alsander with him. Well, we won't disappoint him. A ship has already sailed for Alansia with warriors and mages aboard. Just a diversion, of course, although we've made sure that his spies have heard of it as a serious mission. But you, my friend, will be making for the real quarry. Mordraneth has hidden Alsander on the Isle of Despair, a small island just off the eastern coast of the Island of Scars, presumably in the Sea of Uninspired Evil Names. Deep within the Iron Crypts he has hidden him, why he has not slain him, I do not know. But I do know this. We need desperately to find out what Alsander had discovered, and we must get him back alive. And you are the warrior to do it. One brave hero can penetrate defences secretly and silently, where a group would raise too many alarms and thereby fail, and a wizard would be useless. No magic works within the Iron Crypts, save for that which Mordraneth himself uses. No, it is a brave and fearless warrior we need. A small ship, the Petrel, is waiting. Will you accept this quest? If you don't, then my magic will ensure that you remember nothing of what I have said when you leave. I cannot afford any idle gossip. But he is smiling, for he has seen your hand move to your scabbard at the prospect of the adventure. Gold and glory, my friend, I can promise you both in abundance. Let us drink to it, but not too much. 
The tide will be favourable in but a few hours. So, I mean, it's a very simple setup, but I feel like it's been laid out with a degree of wit and care that makes me feel genuinely excited to be going on the adventure. Fair weather and a good easterly breeze have sped you along your way. You should reach the Isle of Despair in but a day or two. Gariath, the ship's captain, has been well paid, and you had no problem arranging for him to pick you up after you have completed your quest. But now dark clouds are gathering, and a gale is picking up. The captain gives orders for battening down the hatches and prepares to run before the wind. The first heavy drops of rain splatter down on the wooden deck. As you prepare to go below, a cry goes up from a crewman, and your gaze follows his pointing finger. A huge black bird with a wingspan of yards and outstretched talons is plummeting down from the leaden sky straight towards you. Do you want to flee or stay and fight the menace? And there is a picture of the menace. You can see the bird, little more than a black shape with outstretched claws coming out of roiling dark clouds. And you can see the sailor pointing in alarm and the waves crashing in the background. It's great. Well, we've just been told that we are a fearless and glory-hungry adventurer, so I think we will stay and fight the menace. You are in combat with a giant stormbird. You must fight it alone, since the sailors are too far away and can't get to aid you through the rain and gale and lashing waves which spill onto the deck. The giant stormbird has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 12, and as a little note to say, if you are slain by the Stormbird's slashing talons and cruel beak, your first adventure has ended here. Which is nice. So, for the first time, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Stormbird. It did two points of damage to me, reducing my stamina to 18. Did you turn your back and try to flee before fighting the Stormbird? I did not. Captain Gariath and his men congratulate you on your bravery. You may take provisions from the ship's galley in order to recover any stamina points you may have lost in combat with the Stormbird. That's nice. Stamina now back to 20. Well done, Gariath says, but this encounter troubles me. It is very rare to see such a bird in these latitudes. Perhaps somebody already knows of your coming and is attracted to such a creature by magic. This is not a good thought on which to settle down to sleep, but you get a good night's rest and in the early morning you feel refreshed and ready to set out for the Isle of Despair. So that's nice. I like that there's a little reward for doing the heroic thing. It's underrated, I think, the extent to which you can use the first encounter, and in particular the first combat encounter, to really set the tone of the adventure you're going to be on and set out the kind of expectations that the book is going to have for how you might approach different types of challenge. One of the sailors gives you a small jar of ointment. Add this to the list of equipment carried on your adventure sheet. 
He explains that on the Isle of Despair there may be insects which bite and spread disease, and this will help repel them. He commends you on your bravery and says he hopes his gift will help you. You thank him and collect your gear for the adventure to come. So there we go, another little reward for being heroic. Um, I'm particularly sensible uh, of the advantage this may bring because in real life I am a ginger and for some reason every biting insect absolutely loves a ginger. On this foggy morning you make out the Isle of Despair a short distance away to starboard. Captain Garrieth explains that there is no natural harbour here and you must make your own way from now on. The crew lower a rowing boat into the water and, taking all of your equipment and provisions, you lower yourself into the boat and row for the shore as the petrol glides slowly away into the gloom. You are nearly ashore when a huge pair of grey pincers, trailing green and purple strands of seaweed, rise from the shallow water and snap at your oar. The streaked grey shell, beady eyes and hooked jaws of a giant skull crab emerge after them. Do you want to fight the creature, throw some food at it, or try and row to shore quickly and get away? Uh, ooh, giant crabs, bit of a classic. I've got nine, no, I'm sorry, I've got ten provisions, so I think I can risk hoying a sausage roll in the skull crab's direction. You throw some food towards the crab, which grabs at it and misses. You now have time to row away while the dim-witted crab finds and gobbles down the food. Reduce your provisions by one. So, shame, I was looking forward to that sausage roll, but if it gets me out of a fight, it's a worthwhile sacrifice. You row to the shoreline without any further incident. You beach your boat and look around. To the west is a trail leading towards the hilly interior of the island, and to the south there is a tall white cliff which bars your way. Appearing out of the wispy mist to the north looms a huge figure, a giant, almost sixteen feet tall, clad in green and his hair a tangle of kelp and shells that he wears for decoration. He is muscular and carries a massive club. There's a picture of the giant. It's interesting, actually, because he really does feel like a giant, even though there's no objects or trees to act as a reference point. It's quite a clever thing. You've got the figure emerging out of the mist, and there's just something about him that seems to suggest giantness somehow. I guess the limbs are sort of somewhat elongated, and he's taking up a lot of the frame. But yeah, another cracking Ross Nicholson bit of art. Hello, human, he booms. Will you attack him, greet him in return, or run away, I think we'll say. Hello, and hope that he's a big, friendly giant. Sorry about Edwina, the sea giant says. She's frisky today. I hope that she hasn't hurt you. Good. He looks around at the mist. It's going to rain. Would you care for food and shelter? Do you want to accept his offer or decline and set off west along the trail? I mean, it's a classic thing for a giant to lure you back to the lair with promises of food and then turn out to have you as an idea for the main course. Um, he also has a pet carnivorous crab, which does also ward me off him. Having said that, 
if I had the opportunity to have a giant crab as a pet, I might even take it myself. So who's to say? I think I'm going to have to take his offer because, as always, my curiosity is piqued and I just have to know. You set off north together and soon reach the giant's cave, which is set into a hillside sloping down to the shoreline. You enter and look around. There's some fine fish stew simmering and he offers you a huge bowl of it. You eat with relish. The giant looks thoughtful and says, This is becoming an increasingly evil place. I'm not afraid, for I can look after myself, but you... You must be on some kind of quest here. You nod but say nothing, determined to give nothing away. I don't know if this will help you, but it might mean something, he says, and he retrieves an old scroll which he had carefully concealed under a large pile of shells and conches. You read it. Singing in the wind is the harbinger of death, and the stealer of souls shall tear terrors from the minds of the damned to make his home. It seems to make little sense to you. I mean, kind of sounds like death metal lyrics, if I'm honest. Maybe black metal lyrics. It seems to make little sense to you, nor can you make out all of the date inscribed in one corner. The numbers are smudged, and only three are legible. Three... Five, oh, in that order. But you thank the giant. He tells you that you can keep the scroll. Add the scroll to your equipment list and make a note of the date numbers. I sense a hidden paragraph ahoy. Soon it begins to rain heavily and you stay in the giant's cave for the night. The next morning is sunny and clear. The giant wishes you well and gives you some salted fish, enough for three meals. So we now got back up to 10. I think 10 is the maximum we can carry. And you set off to the west to seek the trail leading inland. So it's going very well. It's going suspiciously well. You set off west along the trail. Misty drizzle begins to fall. Do you feel wet, uncomfortable and miserable? At midday you must stop and eat a meal. As you take out some food you find that the damp has seeped through your backpack and some of your food is spoiled. Reduce your provisions by two. Easy come, easy go, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess the salt fish and that packet of pickled onion monster munch I was saving have been spoiled. That's a shame. The trail splits. You can either head north, where you can see hilly terrain and bracken in the distance, or you can continue west along what seems to be a fairly well-used mud track. I'm going to go for the well-used mud track in the hope of finding a settlement and some kind of clue. Cat is making disgusting squelching noises in the background as he busily washes himself. I apologise if that gets picked up by the mic. You make good progress along the trail, but as the sun begins to set you see no sign of a safe place to sleep. There are hills to the north and only the continuing trail to the west. To the south there's a small copse of trees nestling against the rock face. You move up to take a look around. As you warily check the trees, a tiny thin face with drooping pointed ears and a sharp little black eyes peers round a clump of bushes. Are you looking for somewhere to sleep? The tree sprite asks shyly. You nod your head and he races up a tree trunk and fumbles something out of sight. Then he throws down a rope hammock. 
Get up in the trees, he urges. There might be a wolf about, or worse. He dances away through the high branches and is gone. You take his advice, clamber up the tree, rig the hammock, and settle into a sound sleep. Do you have any treasure? Well, I've got a message scroll and I've got some insect repellent. It's a poor do if either of those is being categorised as treasure. I'm going to say I do. I'm going to say that insect repellent just about qualifies as a treasure in a fantasy world. You must now test your luck. First luck test of the game. Well, with a luck of 12, I automatically succeed. Luck now. 11. You are awakened by the sprite rummaging through your backpack. Angrily, you grab him and put a stop to his thievery. He whimpers and begs for you to spare his life. He even offers you magic if you will let him go. Do you want to break the little pest's neck or tell him that you might spare his life after all? So there's a lovely illustration of the sprite caught in the moment of rummaging. Classic Russ Nicholson. The tree just looks amazing and the darkness is so oppressive. It seems like a really dark forest location. Love it. So I don't think that thieving should be punished by murder. So I think we will tell him that we might spare his life after all. The sprite thanks you for your mercy. In return for sparing his life, he gives you a small pouch with three tiny bags of luck powder. Add these to your adventure sheet. Each of these bags contains a sprinkling of magical dust, which, if shaken on your hands, will restore one luck point. You may use this magic to restore lost luck points at any time except during a combat. Shamefacedly, the sprite promises not to disturb you again. So, three luck points available. You wake next morning fairly refreshed by your sleep and regain two stamina points. So, I'm already on my maximum stamina of 20. This is going suspiciously well. You set off on a fine day with the cries of the seabirds in your ears, and before long you arrive at a crossroads. By the side of the path to the north, there stands a wooden pole with a skull atop it. By the southern path, there is a bloodied fistful of bird's feathers on a pointed stick. There is nothing to mark the path which continues westwards. I don't like either a skull or a bunch of bloody feathers. I'm just going to continue going west. Having reached the crossroads on the trail, you set off west along the unmarked path. You are heading into undulating low foothills, and your legs grow tired as you march. There are craggy peaks to the north, and the trail turns northwest towards them. It is late afternoon when you begin to grow hungry and you must stop to eat a meal. The rays of the setting sun bathe the countryside in a warm glow and reflect back from some kind of small building made of grey rock to the west. You could reach it in an hour. So, uh, yeah, we will go and investigate that building. It doesn't instruct me to cross off any provisions, but I will do so purely on the basis that that makes the most sense, I think, in the situation. But we will go and have a look at the building. Struggling across the rocky terrain, you arrive at the building just as twilight descends. There is a small, simple structure, without windows, but with an open door facing west. It is too gloomy to see what is inside. You will have to enter, for you need safe shelter, so you light a lantern and move in. A groan greets you as you enter. In the gloom you can make out a man chained to the wall. 
on one side of what could be an altar. He reaches out a hand to you as you enter and begs for your help, mumbling in an unknown tongue. There is an illustration of him. Oh, it's fantastic. I say this with every single illustration, but this one is particularly good. He's standing on tiptoes, his body's all bent over. The chains are wonderful, his hands stretching out. His face is contorted in a a howl of despair. It's just cracking. Uh, I guess we'll help him, or should we stay where we are and look around? Uh, so we can attack him, which seems a bit mean. Yeah, we'll stay where we are and look around. You don't move, but he does. The illusion melts away so that you can see the black-robed dark priest for what he is. But not before a spell of magical cold has wrapped you in numbing blackness. Deduct six points from your stamina. If you are still alive, he moves in to finish you off with his mace. You are confronted by a dark priest. You must fight for your life against this pitiless enemy in this dark and terrible place. The Dark Priest has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 13. Big stamina scores in this adventure. So, um, in the hope of getting some revenge against this uh, scoundrel, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Dark Priest. He reduced me to eight stamina points and I used a point of luck to speed finishing him off so my luck reduced to 10. I will now use a bit of the old magic luck dust to get my luck back to 11 and I'm going to sit down and eat a Hawaiian pizza and a packet of Mr Kipling's finest fondant fancies to return my stamina to 16 points. I now have five provisions remaining. Breathing heavily, you push away the body of the evil cleric with your foot. As you do so, a pouch he had at his belt spills out five gold pieces. As you look around, it dawns upon you how evil this place is. You sense an emanation of evil from the altar, and there are dread wall paintings showing scenes of unspeakable horror. One in particular captures your attention. A black skull with livid red eyes floating in the air above a rocky crevasse, gloating over the terrified ghostly forms of spirits of the dead. But there's no shelter to be found outside, so you will have to sleep here. You look around and discover a trap door beneath a carpet in front of the altar, you pull the dark priest's body over to it to stop anything getting in, then settle down to sleep. Now you must test your luck. So my luck currently 11 and 3. Luck reduced to 10. Do you have a silver medallion? I do not. You sleep comfortably and soundly and you regain 2 stamina points. Stamina now 18. In the morning you may either return to the trail and set off northwest, or open the trapdoor and investigate what is beneath. Well, I was a huge fan of the trapdoor as a child. Uh, wonderful, wonderful bit of bizarre British animated fun, which I haven't thought about in years. Wow. Um, I'm going to open that trapdoor and find out what's beneath. Much like Burke, the protagonist of that particular show. Using your lantern, you descend the steeply cut stone steps to the winding limestone passages below. These twist and turn, and you seem to spend hours travelling with only faint sounds of dripping water for company. 
You must stop to eat a meal during your travels or deduct two points from your stamina. So we'll eat a meal. Send down a uh, chicken jowl frazy on top of the uh, Hawaiian pizza and the fondant fancies we had for breakfast. Now we must test our luck. Seven. Luck now down to nine. I'm going to use another bit of the old luck powder to pop my luck back up to ten. At last, your patient travels are awarded. You turn a corner and some 50 yards away you see a pair of iron-railed gates set into limestone walls. You have reached your first goal, the entrance to the Iron Crypt. So, kind of a success. Uh, you have found the entrance to the crypt, but the iron bars are a definite physical obstacle to further progress. You can try and bend them by sheer strength if you wish, or you can just keep waiting out of sight to see if anything comes along. That sounds like the more reasonable approach. After a few minutes, you hear the sound of footsteps coming down the passage from beyond the railing gates. Taking a careful peek, you observe a goblin who is standing idly by them on the other side. You can either keep still and do nothing, or you can try and make some slight noise while staying out of sight to see what happens. See if we can encourage the goblin to open the gates. We'll uh, make a slight noise. You hear a shout and the patter of nasty little goblin feet, and then the sound of creaking railings. The goblin has called a friend along, and they opened the gates, and now stand before you, their swords at the ready. It is futile to try talking to them, so you must fight. Fight the goblins one at a time as you are backed up in a side tunnel. Nice to see that goblins remain exactly as rubbish as they always have, with the first goblin having a skill of five and a stamina of six, and the second goblin having a skill of six and a stamina of five. Given that the fights so far have been against surprisingly meaty opposition in terms of their stamina, this feels like a welcome return to beating up scrubby little monsters. So, on the assumption that I will be beating up some scrubby little monsters, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the goblins, as always when I start getting a bit cocky. The first thing that happened on the very first round of combat is I took two damage, reducing my stamina to 16. Happily, I then murdered the goblins without any further injury. So... The gates are open and you can now head along the passageway, keeping your sword unsheathed. There may be more goblins about. I'm always happy to see a goblin for some reason, even more so than orcs. I just really like goblins as the little mean-spirited monsters that let you know that you're in a proper old-school fantasy adventure. Yeah, love a goblin. You head north along a limestone passageway, your eyes slowly adapting to the dim light provided by stubby growths of luminous moss and lichens on the wall. There's just enough light to see by, and you're less likely to be spotted if you don't use your lantern. The passageway eventually bends round to the west and stops at a dead end, but the dead end is suspiciously smooth. As you carefully touch it, you realise that the rock... It's just an illusion. There is a door here. Keeping your sword ready, you turn the door handle. It gives so you walk through. Wow, introducing, finding and opening a secret door all in one paragraph. I admire the restraint. 
A dirty, cluttered room, crudely furnished and with doors leading in several directions, greets your eyes. But you have no time to take in all the details. There are two goblins here, and they leap up to attack you. In the doorway, you can fight them one at a time. So, first goblin has a skill of five and a stamina of five. Second goblin, skill five, stamina six. Oh, we're going to be killing a lot of goblins before we're through, I'm guessing. So, uh, once again, in very short order, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the goblins without taking so much as a scratch. A quick search through the room and the goblin bodies reveal nothing of interest or value, save for a pair of bone dice they were playing with. Always use more dice. I'll take those. There are three other doors in this worked stone chamber. All appear to be easy to open. North, west or south? Well, I've been avoiding the north, so... I think maybe now is the time to reverse that and take the north door. The door opens, revealing a passageway beyond. This ends at a T-junction. From here you can go either west or east. Well, this would appear to be, since we're travelling north, a straightforward left-right decision. And what do we do? We go left. Yes, that's what we do. That's what we always do. Good old left. The passageway winds along and eventually you come to a T-junction. On the wall facing you is a wall carving which is rather indistinct. Do you want to stop and look carefully at the carving, take the North Passage or take the South Passage? Uh, we will have a, a good gander at this carving as it's the most interesting thing that's happened to us in a couple of sections. The carved and scratched marks on the smooth wall depict a horrible scene. A man in a black robe stands over the body of an elf, and his outstretched hands seem to be conjuring something from the head and heart of the body. At first this looks vague, almost a smoky cloud, but as you look more closely you begin to see the outline of a venomous spider, with wings taking shape in the cloud. Fully formed, the spider strikes fear into your heart. Somehow you know that this is a dreadful enemy. Deduct one luck. Luck now down to nine. I'm going to have my last bit of luck powder to get it back up to ten. There is a picture of the carving. It's pretty good. The spider fly thing looks suitably grotesque. So I guess we can go back into the room we came from. Or we can go north or we can go south. Well, let's go south. You press on south, ignoring a turning to the east, which only leads to the goblin's room. I feel as though the lead-up to this dungeon has been slightly more enjoyable than the dungeon as it is presented so far. I'm not hating it, it just felt like the outdoors was just a bit more imaginative somehow. And again, I do have a mild preference for wilderness adventures and encounters, so that probably makes sense as well. You head south along the passageway, which then turns west and opens into a chamber lit with flaming braziers. Standing in the doorway, you can just make out steps that lead upward to the far end of this chamber, and a large stone statue standing before them. The statue, sculpted in stone, is nearly ten feet tall and has the head of a horned bull atop a minotaur's body. It is not moving, and as you creep into the chamber, it does not react to you. Your heart beats strongly as you enter. Will the statue attack? 
So nice to show an awareness there that your hardened adventurers, when we see a statue, we think to ourselves, that's going to move, isn't it? It's going to move and have a pop at me. Let's find out whether this one will. As you set foot in the chamber, the statue raises its right hand and greets out, Give me a gem! Will you attack the statue? Give the statue a gem if you have one, which we don't. Do nothing for the moment. Try to run past the statue to the stairs. I quite like that we're given repeated opportunities to just stand there looking a bit bemused and go, Sorry, what? So... Yeah, let's do nothing and see what happens. I repeat the request, but once. Give me a gem, the statue roars. You must either give it a gem if you have one, which I don't, or prepare yourself to fight the statue. You are fighting a stone golem. It strikes at you with its hard stone fists, and it is not easy to parry or strike successfully with an ordinary sword. When you succeed in hitting your adversary, you must roll one die on a roll of a one or two. Your blow is ineffective and does no damage to the golem. So, uh, the stone golem has a skill of eight and a stamina of eleven. We could be here some time with this one. But yeah, it's a little combat wrinkle. You know, I always enjoy those. It's a very appropriate combat wrinkle. I was just thinking that, ooh, I bet my sword would be a really rubbish thing to use against an animated statue. So... Full marks for creating an encounter that feels entirely appropriate, and I'm going to roll some dice. That was not nearly as bad as I was expecting. I took zero damage and dealt with a stone golem in fairly short order, although I imagine my sword is now a little bit blunt. You ascend to an east-west passageway. It is dark and you must use your lantern. You see that the western passage soon turns south, do you want to take that path or head west? Let's take the one that turns south. I'm not looking forward to having to map this out on my subsequent playthroughs. I do hate making maps. Again, another reason why I like Wilderness Adventures. It's that, you know, you can remember stuff like, oh yeah, I need to go towards the big tree or the mountain or the village or whatever. Can't do that in a dungeon. Just a little way past the southern twist in the passageway you can see two doors next to each other, one on each side of the wall, to the east and the west. So we will open the east door. The lock and hinges of this door are very rusty, and the door looks very solid. You can try and smash it down, try to use an ebony key, which I don't have, try using a bunch of keys that I don't have, or a vial of white oil that I don't have, or give up and try the west door, or give up and head south down the passage. So, of those options, let's have a look at the west door. You open the door effortlessly, but now you must test your luck. It is a good job that we had that luck powder, because there are a lot of luck tests in this game. I succeed with a roll of five, my luck now down to nine. I have no more luck powder as well, so that's a bit of a shame. You leap aside just as a spear hurtles past you, triggered by a trap linked to the door. The spear impales itself in the door opposite you. Moments later you hear sounds to the north, so you decide to set off southwards. It is dark to the south, and you must have a light source to see by. Your lantern or a magical sword if you have one. That's interesting. Magical swords in the offing, are there? Your footsteps crunch on chips of stone, and as you look down you see that other footprints lead this way. Vigilantly, you walk quietly on. 
Soon you see a small side passage to the east, which ends at a wooden door with a small iron grill. Do you want to investigate the door or continue? We will have a little look. Peering through the grill, you can just make out two slumped human bodies lying on a pile of filthy straw inside a dank, unlit cell. Will you try and open the door and help these people or turn back and go south? We will open the door. Do you have a bunch of keys? I do not, and the door is securely locked, so I have to just go south. That is a shame. Still, the fact that the keys are cropped up multiple times is a really nice way of saying, like, this could be a really handy item to have, as you would expect. I mean, a set of keys to the dungeon... That's a, a potent asset to have. You soon arrive at a door barring your way at the end of this southern passage. You hear no sounds beyond and the door opens easily, revealing light beyond. With sword drawn, you move cautiously through. You enter a gloomy, dirty and rather small room in which two bored orcs are sitting at a table, gnawing at a roast dwarf joint. It's a bit grim. They look cruel and mean, and have their swords ready to hand. They attack at once in the doorway. You can fight them one at a time. The orcs are rubbish orcs. They've got the same stats as... In fact, one of them has got worse stats than any of the goblins we've so far encountered, because he's got a skill of five and a stamina of four. The second orc has a skill of five and a stamina of six. For the however manyth time this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the orcs, and I have taken no damage. The orcs have nothing but one gold piece, which one carries in a pouch. So now we've got a, a whopping total of six gold pieces. Well, the wizard did say that fame and fortune awaited, and boy howdy, he wasn't wrong. I suspect we've got the price of a large cinema popcorn by this point. Their dirty, lice-ridden chamber smells awful, and you leave in haste. You can either open the easterly door or the door to the south. Let's keep going south. A passageway leads south beyond the door, and this is dimly lit by torches in wall sconces. Following the short passage to the end, you see that it soon turns east. However, there is a plain, darkwood door on the west side of the passageway at the end, facing the east-turning main passageway. You cannot see the end of that eastern passage yet. I'm starting to feel as though words like north, south, east and west have lost all meaning through overuse at this point. I have a not particularly good visual imagination in some ways, and I have particular issues around spatial reasoning. Uh, so this kind of thing is just enormously confusing to me. So we can either go east or west, uh, but one of those is a door and one of them isn't, so we'll go with the door. Do you have the ebony key? I don't. You cannot open this door by any means available to you. Frustrated, you set off in an easterly direction. At least I know what I definitely need to be looking for on my next playthrough. A locksmith. Basically, I need to find a branch of Timpson somewhere on the Isle of Despair. You stand before a door marked with a black and amber cross. You decide to open it to see what lies on the other side. You enter a well-lit room where an orc is standing at a table pouring oil into an intricate brass vessel of some kind. Around the table stand a few chairs, but there is no other decoration save for a crude bunk bed. Two other doors lead south and east from this room. 
The orc snarls and draws his sword, and you must fight him. But what really worries you is that as you enter, he shouts, Master! Master! Too much to hope he's just singing along with Metallica's Master of Puppets. So, yes, the orc has a skill of five and a stamina of six. I have to roll some dice. Uh, But also, if I win, I have to turn immediately to the next paragraph without taking any further actions of any sort, which is kind of cool. So even though this is yet another fight with a skill five, stamina six goon, I'm anxious to get it done purely on the grounds that a sort of exciting, intriguing thing might be about to occur. Anyway, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the orc. I took no damage, but I must immediately go to the next section. The southernmost door in this room flies open and a cowled figure stands framed in the doorway. A livid blue scar bisects the left side of his expressionless face and he waves his thin, almost skeletal, long-nailed fingers as he chants a spell. You rush him with your sword. Roll two dice and add one to the number rolled. And is that less than your skill? Roll two dice, add one. I get a two, a five. That makes seven, makes eight. Well below my skill of eleven. Hooray. You take a swing at your enemy with your sword, galvanised by fear of what the effect of his spell might be. You don't hit him, but you do force him to duck, ruining his concentration so that his spellcasting is spoiled. Cursing you, he draws from his belt a vicious double-thonged flail with wicked strips of jagged metal studded into the thick leather. You will have to overcome him in physical combat. So it's another Dark Priest. You are now in hand-to-hand combat with the evil Dark Priest overseer of this part of the dungeon. You will not find him easy to overcome. He has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 12. Quite cool that he's got the same playbook as the first Dark Priest we found at the entrance to the dungeon. I often criticise books for being too repetitive, and don't get me wrong, we will be talking about the number of orcs and goblins on display in my closing remarks, but sometimes repetition can create a nice effect, and this is one of those times. I know that I've just avoided taking six stamina points of damage from one of his evil spells. And that's cool. You can only do that if you have the encounter a second time. So, once again, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Dark Priest. He reduced me to eight stamina points. So I'm going to immediately scoff down uh, a rack of lamb and a chip butty, two provisions to return my stamina to 16. And I have two provisions remaining. Such a hard fight and an adversary who used magic against you. Could it be? Surely not. Although you were told that only Mordraneth's own spells would work in the Iron Crypts, this must have been a minion instructed by Mordraneth. And your job is to find Alessander at any event. So, do we want to search the bodies? Do we want to try the east door? Do we want to look through the south door? Uh, We'll search the bodies. The orc has one gold piece, which you may take. Seven gold pieces. His flask is shattered on the ground. His oil is spilled. The priest's armour is ruined by a sword thrust. And you'd rather have your sword than his flail. Fair enough. 
but he does wear a golden bracelet. Do we want to take the bracelet? I mean, is that the thing that lets him cast spells? It could be. I'm going to take the bracelet. Your greed has overcome your caution and good sense. The bracelet is an evil, magical thing, and it hates anyone less evil than its previous owner. It constricts and crushes the bones of your wrist. Shrieking with pain, you manage to wrench the thing off, but you lose one skill points and two stamina points from the injury it has caused you. So skill now 10, stamina now 14. Oh well, we've learned something. You throw the cursed thing down and open the door to the east to get away from a carnage in here. The small room beyond is plainly furnished with chairs and a small table on which you see a decanter of white wine, some cheeses and a fruit pie. You suddenly feel hungry. Do you want to eat a meal from what is on the table? I do. I will regain two stamina points. And you can take the cheese for another meal later. Excellent. Now up to three provisions. There is a small door in the south wall of this room and you decide to open this after checking for noise and hearing nothing. Good old listening at doors. In the room beyond the small door, you quickly spot a trapdoor in the floor which is half covered by a tatty rug and heavily barred from your side. The room is sparsely furnished, a bed with clean bedding, a chair and a table on which stands a small portable incense burner. Do you have any blocks of incense? I do not. You are tired now and beginning to feel sleepy. Seeing how heavily the trapdoor is barred and how comfortable the bed looks, you jam the chair under the handle of the door in the north wall of this room, where it wedges it shut splendidly and settle down for some rest. You sleep well and wake refreshed, recover two stamina points. Stamina now 18. After sleeping, you unbar the trapdoor and look down. Deciding you will have to investigate, you descend the unlit steep stone steps using your light source to guide your way. Eventually you arrive at a landing. A flambeau blazes and spits green flame on the west wall and illuminates doors in the middle of the east and south walls. Will you stay still and listen for noise? Open the east door or open the southern door? I think we will stay still and listen for noise. Proper adventuring stuff. Ooh, roll a die. Anything other than a one is fine. I got a five, so yeah. You hear nothing. Now open either the eastern door or the southern door. Well, let's keep going south. You follow the passageway behind the door until you come to another door. This is slightly ajar, and you peer round it into the room beyond. An oaken table stands in the middle of the room with a large tablecloth covering it. On the table you see silver cutlery, fine porcelain and cut crystal. Bread, meat and fruits laid out and ready to eat. There is no sign of anyone in the room, so you enter. You see that there are two doors in the room, one in the east and one in the west wall. Do we want to eat some food? Honestly, I've got nearly full stamina. I'm not risking some cursed fodder. I will I'll ignore that and we'll go... Uh, we'll go east. You open the door into an untidy room with plain furnishings, where you see a young red-haired man sitting at a desk. As you enter, he leans back and twirls a dagger in the palm of his hand. You might have knocked, he says reproachfully, fiddling with a cuff button on his maroon jerkin. He's not making any hostile moves, but clearly he expects a reply. 
And there's a picture of the young man. He looks pretty smug, I have to say. Caught in the act of fiddling with his cuff. Another cracking illustration from Ross Nicholson. What is there I can say at this point? Uh, So we can attack him. We can say the people upstairs sent us or say we're a tradesman. Well, I'm going to say that he's in a dungeon. He's armed with a knife. He's not going to be a good guy. So I'm just going to attack him, quite honestly. You are now fighting the young guard who does not look very strong, but who is very nimble and agile. So his speed makes him a dangerous enemy. He's got a skill of nine and a stamina of seven. Once again, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the young guard. My stamina reduced to 16 onwards. We can either search the room the guard was occupying or leave through the west door. Let's search that room. It's like the contract, isn't it? Between the adventure designer and the player. That once you've done the fighty thing, you get to have a rummage. You search through a litter of papers and bric-a-brac which fill the guard's room. There seems to be nothing valuable, but you do find a sheet of vellum covered with ornate, bold handwriting. It reads, I need to know by the end of today how the meddling wizard learnt to use magic I did not teach him here in the crypts. If he will not talk before the end of the day, have the torturer put him to death by fire. Merabian will assist, and of course those dark, pointy-eared little fellows will want to watch. I have better things to do with my time. It is signed simply M, so I guess the wizard is Elsinore. I guess the M is Mordraneth, and I guess the pointy-eared little fellows are some sort of dark elf. So, uh, suggests a reason why he's kept Elsinore alive, because he wants to find information from him. Beyond the door is a torch-lit passage which leads westwards and then bends round to the south. You notice that it is not dusty, but clean, so you deduce that many people may pass along it regularly. There may be many foes here, but perhaps also someone who might be helpful, if you are lucky and careful. Soon you come to a T-junction, and you can either go east or west. We'll go east. At the end of a passage is a closed door, the wood of which has many deep marks and cuts from which frayed wooden splinters hang. From outside you can hear angry cries and the sound of clashing metal on the other side of the door. Do you want to push open the door and investigate or head back west? We will investigate, of course. You open the door and look into a chaotic shambles of a room. Crude wooden furniture has been tipped over and smashed jugs and torn papers lie about the place. Two orcs are fighting each other with swords. Each calls out to you for help against the other. I'm going to either leave them to it, help one against the other, or fight both the orcs. I might just fight both the orcs, to be brutally honest with you. They're orcs. No, no, let's let's fight one of the orcs against the other, and then we can just fight that one inevitably at the end. You wade in, fighting on the side of one orc against the other, who is soon killed. You take no damage in the battle. Thanks, says the orc you helped. I always hated him. Now nah, I can get me money back what he stole off of me. So uh, that was rendered phonetically in a way that I'm not quite sure why that leaves a faintly nasty taste in my mouth. The orc bends down to take a leather pouch from the body. Will you leave this room, attack the single orc remaining, or talk to the orc? Well, let's have a chat with him. 
Since the orc is obviously friendly, you start to talk and ask him what he knows about torturers and any prisoners about the place. Yeah, he says. There's old what's-his-face, the half-ogre. Good entertainer, he is. Less as watch sometimes. Last week we had an adventurer in, and he impaled him on barbed hooks. The orc rubs his hands with pleasure at the memory. It has already occurred to you that if you're not careful, it could be you next. You decide you don't want to hear any more of this, so you set off along the passageway westwards. The passage goes on westwards, and then it turns south once again. Once more, it is clear that you are treading a well-frequented path. At the end of the passage, you observe a wooden door with a handle bearing an ornate door plaque of bronze and a silver door handle. Just before this, there is a side passage to the east, at the end of which is a small door which has a sign affixed to it. Danger, keep out. Do you want to open the southern door at the end of the corridor or investigate the east door at the end of the side passage? Well, if you tell me danger, keep out, I immediately think to myself, I bet there's something really cool in there. So we'll go down the side passage. You try to open the eastern door, but it is locked. Do you have an ebony key? I don't. You feel that you could perhaps knock down the door, but this would require some hefty kicking and you might lose some of your stamina. You could also alert guards or monsters around the place. Do you want to try battering down the door or return to the main passage and open the door at the end? We will go and open the door at the end. Don't want to call down any more orcs, goblins or other near-do-wells because quite honestly I'm getting a little bit weary of running combats. You open the door and walk into a large chamber constructed of bare stone with high walls lit by torches which burn and spit, giving off blue light and faintly greenish smoke. This smoke is unpleasant, irritating your throat and nostrils. There is a half-open door in the east wall, from behind which a red glow spills into this room. There is another door in the west wall, and this is made of very stout black wood with massively thick iron banding, and fittings. In the northeast corner of the room is a fountain with a thin jet of liquid spraying several feet into the air. Do you want to drink some water from the fountain, toss a gold piece into the fountain and make a wish, open the west door or cross to the east door and look round it? Well, do you know what? I've only got seven gold pieces. I might as well risk one on a wish. As you think about making your wish, you notice that bubbles are forming on the surface of the gold piece. The liquid isn't water. It is Acid. Good job I didn't have a glug of it, I guess. You move away from the fountain and now you can either open the west door or look round the east door. Let's look round the east door. Lucky escape. A grim sight unfolds before your eyes as you look round the door. Fierce heat radiates from a huge metal brazier filled with white-hot coals from which a number of branding iron handles are projecting. Tables carry brass vessels, clawed pincers and pliers. Even more horrid items are scattered all round the room. You've also been seen by the room's occupant, a misshapen creature with green-brown skin and huge muscular limbs covered in wiry tufts of black hair. But he just grins at you, showing the yellowed stumps of rotten teeth and gestures you in. You can either attack him or go in and talk with him. Well, this seems to be the torturer, the half-ogre we were warned to expect. So 
Honestly, I don't particularly fancy bandying words with a professional torturer. I'm just going to try and stab him in the face. You are fighting a wily and strong half-ogre. He advances on you, wielding a barbed metal rod mounted on a short wooden polearm. He is no mean opponent. He's got a skill of eight and a stamina of 14. Yet again, it's that time. It's time to roll some dice. I have defeated the half-orc torturer, and I was reduced to 12 stamina points, so I'm going to scarf down a bag of quavers and get myself back up to 16. I've got two provisions remaining. Having overcome your formidable enemy, you take some keys from his belt and release the prisoner from the cell in which he is being kept. From the darkened cell, full of filthy straw and lice, you lead a weak old man with white hair and beard all streaked with dirt. If you have any provisions or a magical potion of healing, you must give him one. So I will... I don't have a magical potion of healing, but I do have a deep-fried Mars bar. And that'll sort him out. One provision remaining. You have a feeling that his magic will increase your chances of escape from here, and he will need all of his strength to use it. He thanks you for your kindness. You look for the man's clothes and find a set of ornately decorated wizard's robes on a peg in this room. You hand them to the old man who gratefully exchanges them for the rags he was kept in. Thank you, says the wizard in a stereotypical wizardy voice. My name is Elsander. As you had hoped, the wizard you were sent to rescue. Excitedly, you tell him who sent you and your purpose here. Alsander listens intently, but then shakes his head sadly. Ah, cunning Mordreneth, of course he fooled Venestin into a wild goose chase in Alansia. Now Venestin and the other wizards won't be able to resist him when he lands in Palua. You look at Alsander, puzzled. What can he mean? The wizard soon enlightens you. Mordreneth isn't in Alansia at all. He's here. He is scheming a monstrous evil deep within the foundations of the Iron Crypts, in his Empire of Illusions, as he calls it. There he is harnessing a dreadful power, one to drive men to madness and death, in order to unleash it on Palua to bring him still greater power. If he can achieve his goal, none can challenge him. This is dire news indeed, but an idea is beginning to form at the back of your mind. When you were first asked to rescue Alsander, you regretted losing the opportunity for glory, which ridding the world of Mordreneth would bring. You ask Alsander to continue. Mordreneth found a magical way of stealing souls. Gosh, you could almost call him a stealer of souls. More precisely, he has found a magical way of stealing the images and emotions of terrifying things from the minds and spirits of the dead. Fear of darkness, fear of death, terror of the night, whose spectres and wraiths roam the world, fear of falling phobias of many kinds. From these emotional energies and images, he creates illusions, which have enough power to drive those who witness them to madness or death. He has also found that he gets the best results with the souls of those freshly dead, preferably killed by himself. Hence he will soon unleash his illusionary army on Polua to wreak havoc, so that he will thus have even more souls to steal. I will have to teleport to Polua to give what warnings I can. 
But it is only here he can be stopped. You are our only hope of stopping him now. Alsander clutches your arm and gazes deep into your eyes. Thousands of innocents will be slain if you refuse to help. The Empire of Illusions is a dreadful place, but I can teach you a few spells to help you there. How can you refuse? Your praises will be sung for scores of years should you succeed. Alsander smiles, relieved. It's fortunate that I learned a little of how Mordraneth has changed magical forces here, enough to modify some spells so that I can use them myself. But time is short, and the Dark Elves may be here soon. I knew it. I knew there'd be Dark Elves. I only have the time and the strength to teach you three spells before I go, and you will be able to use each only once. The wizard walks over to a small chest and puts on his robes. Okay, let's go and choose our spells. We've got three spells we can choose from the list below. Dispel Fear, Dispel Illusion, Fire Globe, Healing, Luck, Restore Skill and Speed. So I'm going to go straight for the Dispel Illusion. I'm going to go for the Dispel Fear. And I'm going to go for Speed and Trust to Luck. Because he's a master of evil illusions that cause fear. So I feel like Dispel Illusion and Dispel Fear are the decent choices. We've already seen one spellcaster that we were able to uh, beat by lunging at him at high speed uh yeah i just think those are going to be the most useful so onwards Alsandor looks weary and pale after teaching you his spells i have just enough strength to teleport home he whispers oh i nearly forgot how to get to the empire of illusions there's a secret door over there and he points to the center of the south wall Go through it and follow the passageway. I must warn you that there are two evil dark elves down there, and beyond their lair is a teleport device which will take you to Mordraneth's deepest lair. If you can slay him, the illusions will disappear, and you'll be able to find a way out. Use the magic I have taught you wisely, for you can use each spell but once. And he murmurs a few words, and his body shimmers and is gone, teleported back to Polua. It's a picture of the wizard in his robes. I like his fancy robes. And um, yeah, he's clean shaven, which makes a nice change from your usual big beardy fellow. So yeah, I always quite like seeing a clean shaven wizard with a vaguely tidy barnet. And uh, yeah, this is one of them. So we go off to confront the Dark Elves. You find the secret door Elsander told you about without difficulty and quietly pushed it open. The smooth passageway beyond is dark, but you can see light streaming from a gap under the door. You move slowly up into position and kick the door open, hoping to surprise your enemies. You glimpse a richly furnished room, and the glint of gold and silk and fur catches your eye, but you have no time to take in details. The Dark Elves inside are too agile and swift to be surprised, and now you must fight them. Fight the Dark Elves one at a time, as you stand in the doorway like a clever person. I do appreciate that, to be honest. Showing an awareness of the kind of relatively basic strategies that adventurers will use to try and avoid being in a 2 on 1 fight situation. So, Dark Elf 1, skill 8, stamina 6. Dark Elf 2, skill 7, stamina 5. I'm going to roll some dice. 
I have defeated the Dark Elves. You look around and pick up the eight gold pieces that the Dark Elves had. Taking my treasure now up to 14 gold. Lovely. But beside this, you see a better treasure still. Wrapped in large, moist, broadleaf wrappings are six small, flat loaves of sweet whey bread, each one equivalent to a full meal. So that acts as six provisions. So I'm going to scoff my last ordinary provisions. Nice cheese and onion pasty and mark down six portions of much less exciting whey bread. Stamina now 20. The rich smell of spices, the glitter of silks and other treasures do not tempt you, for you cannot carry those items. To the east of the room you see an archway leading to a small circular chamber, and you approach it to look at it. In the centre is a raised podium on which a swirl of rainbow colours eddies and flows. The teleport device Alsander told you of. Breathing in deeply, you step into the waves of light and the room fades from your sight. Where will you arrive? To find out, turn to the next section. You find yourself in a circular chamber from which three passages lead off into the distance. The walls seem to shimmer and shift as if they were only half real, or as if a heat haze were wavering in the air. The floor feels solid to your feet, but it looks just as half real as everything else. You must surely now be in the Empire of Illusions, for even the passages seem to shift location. You have no idea where the north and south, east and west lie. Each passage is also of a different colour, unlike this simple bare chamber. So a red passage, a yellow passage and a black passage. So red, yellow, black, well... I'm nothing if not a sad old goth, so I'm going to take the black passage. The passageway is very dark, and you must use your light source to see by. Then suddenly, the light source winks out, and you can do nothing to restore it. You are enveloped in darkness, and a numbing chill creeps over you. You hear whispers, and scuttlings, and squeaks, and then you hear a ghastly sound, the scraping of iron-hard claws on stone. Or is it the sound of a meat cleaver being sharpened? is getting closer and a guttural chuckling accompanies it. You can feel the fear creeping into your bones and you shiver. Darkness deeper than any night is sinking into your very marrow. So you can try and dispel illusion spell or dispel fear spell or flee into the darkness. Let's try dispelling fear. Your nerves are steadied after you have cast the dispel fear spell and the whisperings and faint cries do not affect you. You step forward taking care to test your steps, and soon you see the faint patches of coloured light, which are passageway entrances. There's a brown passage or a grey passage. Let's go for the grey passage. You move along the grey passageway, and the air strikes chilly and dank. Horribly, behind you, the passageway starts to shrink to nothing, closing up behind you, and you have to run to avoid being swallowed up by it. You run into a chamber, which is the colour of yellowed leprous bone. And you see tombs and great sepulchres stretching out before you. Steps lead down to crypts with barred doors of bronze and brass. The place is bone-numbingly cold, and a low moaning starts to fill the air. Suddenly, before your horrified eyes, a spectral shrouded figure rises up out of the cold stone and lunges at you with icy, taloned hands. You will have to fight for your life because this is no illusion. 
It's a spectre. There's a picture of the spectre all wrapped up in kind of bandagey type things. It's really good. It's got a horrible evil grin and glaring eyes. Very much like it. It's got a skill of seven and a stamina of seven. And chillingly, each time it hits, you must deduct one skill point permanently. So, uh, bit of the old level drain. With a degree of trepidation, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Spectre. It dealt two points of damage to me, which means it also sucked a single skill point from me, reducing my skill down to nine. Fearing further horrors like the Spectre, you look around in desperation. At the end of the huge hall of cold stone tombs, you can make out three passageways and you must follow one. There's a green, there's a yellow, and a rainbow-coloured one. Well, I guess as a middle-aged queer man, I've got to go for the rainbow-coloured one. So that's what I'm going for. Passing along the rainbow passage, you feel an unfamiliar sense of goodness. Another illusion, perhaps. The passage leads into a high-ceiling chamber filled with rainbow-coloured lights. Inside, there are three semi-transparent human figures, and also three passages which exit on the far side of the chamber. One yellow-green, one azure, and one a deep ochre colour. One of the shimmering figures drifts soundlessly towards you. Brave friend, not everything here has been corrupted by the wicked one. He has not overcome all of us. Let me give you a blessing to aid you. And he stretches out his hand to touch your head. Uh, no thank you. Um, I doubt very much if he's got my best interest at heart. So I'm going to run for the Azure Passage. You stride along the Azure Passage and you come to a bridge over a deep, blue-tinged rock chasm. You carefully test the solidity of the bridge before walking across it. On the other side is a black tunnel lit with gouts of red light which emanate from some distant, fiery source. Filled with foreboding, you head for the dark tunnel, for this is the only exit. The black tunnel leads into a chamber crossed by two deep chasms. Gouts of flame spurt into the air from both, and clouds of burning gases hang in the air. On the other side of this infernal place you can make out two passages. You step carefully across the ground in order to avoid the chasms and reach the passages, but then into the air rises a ghastly thing, malevolent and hideously evil, a jet-black flying skull with glowing red eyes, from which blood wells and drips, hissing into the fiery chasms below. You feel the elemental evil of this thing and its hunger for your soul. You are struck with fear, deduct one skill point for the duration of this combat and lose two stamina points as well. Stamina now, 16. The Death Skull has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 10 and another unbelievably awesome illustration from Ross Nicholson. I mean... It looks like what you'd imagine. Big old skull and some flames, but it's just beautifully rendered. With an effective skill of 8 against the death skull skill of 9, I'm going to roll some dice. I have been defeated by the evil skull monster. 
I uh, reduced it to two stamina as well, which makes it all the more galling. Not least because I've been recording for about two and a quarter hours, and I genuinely thought this might be the one where I got all the way to the end on the first playthrough. So that's really disappointing. I'm not going to invoke the Sausagey Finger bookmark rule because I've been recording for ages and ages. So with that, the Stealer of Souls is over for this playthrough. I'm going to go away and play it through on my own time, try and unravel its secrets, find out what makes it tick. It's hard to know what to make of it on a very first impression. There's bits of it I really like, there's bits of it that do feel very much like a first attempt at a game book. Um, but I'm sort of slightly confused by how far I managed to get through it without picking up really any of the various items that were hinted at. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how the map shakes out as well. I'm very confused by how the dungeon is organised, but I feel as though it must in some sense be funneling you towards that encounter with Alsander. Maybe not, maybe I'm completely wrong. We will find out when I come back with some detailed closing remarks in just a few seconds. Tatty bye! I've played through Stealer of Souls and finished it on only my second attempt, which makes dying in the first one a little bit of a bummer, if I'm honest. After my first playthrough, I thought this one would wind up being a bit forgettable, but I actually got more into it on the second time around. It's not the most ambitious of books, but it's solidly written and realised, and it doesn't make any big mistakes. It's a classic adventure format, and it should be praised for sticking to the fundamentals and not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's Keith Martin's first game book, and I think there's a lot to be said for banging out something that definitely hits the brief on a first attempt. This feels very much in the same sort of space as Warlock of Firetop Mountain, and I'm confident that this was exactly what the author was aiming for. It's arguably one of the better debuts I've read by virtue of aiming for a solidly entertaining adventure, and hitting that, admittedly, slightly mediocre bar with ease. It makes it a little bit difficult to go into too much depth in analysing the book. Not impossible, I'll always find something that gets me thinking, but there's not really anything here that we haven't seen before, and I don't think there's a lot of design lessons we can take away from it, other than it's better to write something solid than to aim high and miss badly. It's refreshing to read a book by someone who actually has a grasp on how gaming systems work. You'd think that would be a basic requirement for writing a game book, but as we've seen time and time again, there's plenty of creators out there who don't even understand the systems which they themselves have designed, never mind anyone else's stuff. I think Keith Martin understands that the range of abilities which characters have in fighting fantasy is quite large, and has attempted to balance his book more or less in the middle of the distribution. Unfortunately, by this point, most players understood that trying to beat a book with a less-than-average character was usually a thankless task. I always roll a character who's better than average, in the expectation that this is where the difficulty curve will land. Martin is to be praised for a book that I suspect is fairly doable with a skill of 9, and eminently beatable with a skill of 10. It's got a nice structure as well, with the short boat journey and the island itself being followed by a traditional dungeon, 
and then a weird dungeon, which is turning into something of a fighting fantasy tradition in itself. I don't think gamebooks need to be entirely beholden to the three-act structure, but it remains a good narrative tool for creating a framework for your story. One of the biggest storytelling weaknesses I find in gamebooks is a lack of structure. They have a tendency to be all middle, so it's a welcome thing to see a story which divides neatly into discrete sections, each with their own unique feel. The island, in general, is really good. The idea of there being a relatively safe bit before the dungeon, which helps set the scene and creates a contrast with the dangers you'll face once you go underground, is something I really like. It's probably got my favourite encounters in the whole book. There's lots of people to talk to as well as monsters to fight, and it very much eases you into the experience of being an adventurer. I think anyone who started with Stealer of Souls would have had an ideal introduction to the concept of adventure gamebooks. Was this really necessary by book 34? Probably not, but the concessions to the new player are appreciated. And there's an interesting discussion for another day about the tension between wanting to iterate on a series to keep it fresh for old hands, while also creating something that's accessible to people who might be playing a book for the first time. Yeah, I'm going to put a pin in that one. I don't think that's a discussion for today, but it's something I might well think about discussing if we get to one of the more abstract and convoluted books. Adding to the concessions to new players, there is a refreshing lack of a paranoid obsession with the possibility of cheaters. I've talked about this at length, so I won't labour the point here, but Stealer of Souls does two things I like a lot, showering you with items and not requiring you to collect 12 different numbered keys to unlock a bevy of secret sections in order to progress. If you explore the island thoroughly, which is pretty easy to do, you'll end up with a backpack full of potentially useful items. I think there's a few that just don't have a payoff, and I'm absolutely fine with that. There is a small pleasure in just finding something intriguing. When everything has a function, it can make you very aware that you're playing a game. Giving the players the odd useless trinket can build a world really nicely. It's an opportunity to show something about the world through its material culture, if you like. There's nothing that you can find in this section which is absolutely vital, but there's certainly a few things that will make life much easier later in the quest. The Ebony Key, in particular, turns out to be very handy, which is fair enough. A Master Key of sorts is a believable item, and it's really not hard to imagine such a thing making its way up from the dungeon by some means or other. There's a lovely selection of weirdos that you can bump into on the island. The Dark Priest pretending to be a sacrificial victim is great. I like the Crab leading into a friendly sea giant. There's a strange lizard creature who gives you a little side quest, a couple of hobgoblins fighting over the right to do a bad murder, and a village where you can obtain a few valuable clues and items for the quest to follow. Arguably, a few more dangerous encounters would have spiced this section up a bit, but I'm very keen on the way it emphasises that contrast between the world above ground and the more unfriendly and hostile world beneath the surface. There's also some nice messing about with provisions. It's one of my favourite things to see people do. 
using food as a resource rather than just calorie dense healing potions. Another feature that I really enjoyed is that from the island there are two entrances to the Iron Crypts. The one I found in the recorded playthrough is the much less optimal one. There's another one further into the mountains that allows you to skip a decent portion of the dungeon. And it's also skipping some of the less interesting bits of the dungeon too, so finding it feels like a real win. It has to be said that once you get beyond the island, the Iron Crypts themselves initially feel like a bit of a chore. I think that probably came through on my playthrough. The dungeon itself is styled like a classic 1980s dungeon crawl, but the imagination and wit that was so prevalent in the island portion feels a bit lacking here. It adds to my theory that designing really good dungeons in gamebooks is actually very hard indeed. In a group setting, the various corridors and rooms would be enlivened by party members chatting to each other, and you just don't get that in a gamebook. And in particular, I think the house style being very simple and direct, which is good, does tend to highlight the repetitiveness of some of the corridors and doors that you're running into. So even if it does feel a little bit underwhelming at times, I do like the fact that blundering around the crypts at random will basically get you through. There's definitely shorter routes and less dangerous routes, but eventually, if you just keep aimlessly meandering about, you will be funneled to where you need to be to progress. I'm not 100% certain that you'll always find your way to the exit because I haven't mapped it out, but it does have a strong sense that this is a sort of largish space with a bunch of different routes around it, which makes sense for a dungeon as well. And doing a slightly flabby and maybe even subpar dungeon is made much more enjoyable for me by not having any item checks that I could find. I think I'd find this bit a nightmare if I needed to exhaustively explore it in search of a laundry list of magical gigors, but I did enjoy being able to optimise it on a second playthrough. I still think this section would have benefited from maybe being a bit shorter, but it would definitely have benefited from being more overwritten. And I think the island could have been longer. I'd have enjoyed spending more time there. But quite honestly, I think this book probably would have been improved simply by having fewer, more in-depth sections. 400 paragraphs is genuinely quite a lot. Now, the right writer can easily fill that space with interesting things, but I think allowing some of the books to be 300 to 350 sections would have been a good call. When you've got a good beginning and a good end, the temptation to just add more rooms full of orcs to the middle section in order to get to the magical 400, that's going to be difficult to resist. If the sections were longer and more detailed, you'd have a chance to give the dungeon area a stronger visual identity. It's part of the problem with dungeons in general, because in these artificial subterranean locations, there aren't any rules you can borrow to help the player orient themselves. Castles, temples, other overground locations that are kind of like dungeons, they have their own internal logic and you can send the player outside them temporarily to orient them to the architecture and give them an idea about how the overall structure of the building works. For example, you know that in a castle probably the lower portions will contain things like 
kitchens and underground there'll probably be some cellars and maybe some prison cells of one sort or another you can mentally work out in your head from very small descriptions where you are and where other things might be in relation to you you can't do that so easily in tunnels and the sameness of the environment can become problematic I think if I do a proper dungeon adventure, which is one of the ideas I am kicking around in my head, I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to think about how I can make the architecture of different areas stand out and how I can give the player a sense of the overall layout as they progress. This is probably something where RPG creators have done a lot of the donkey work for me, so whatever I do will almost certainly be reprising things that are already out there, but I just like figuring stuff out for myself and coming up with my own solutions to these problems. The final section in the realm of illusions is tremendous fun. It makes a great contrast with the more measured and standard iron crypts. Things get properly weird. There's plenty of opportunity to use various items that you found along the way, as well as the dispel illusion spells you should definitely have loaded up on from the wizard. None of the items are absolutely required but lots of the things you found during your quest will be helpful to get through the final gauntlet and there is a reasonable chance that you will die if you don't have any of them. There's a few challenging encounters but there's also some chances to regain some stamina and also any skill you might have lost. Holding back loss of skill for the final section is a great idea. It really ramps up the tension. There's some dangerous moments but there's a few things which are unfair. I think a couple of instant kill traps and monsters wouldn't have hurt, but the horrible skull that sucks your skill like Ribena, that's a memorable and deadly fight, which I very much enjoyed. It's a bit of a shame that the big blue dragon you can find turns out to be an illusion, despite that being very much on brand for a realm of illusion, because, well, who doesn't love slaying a dragon? It's one of the big bads of fantasy gaming. And if you can beat one in a fight, you feel like you've really arrived as an adventurer. The final encounter with Mordranath is a decent enough multi-stage fight. It's not quite as good as the best finales out there, but there's spells to dodge, decisions to be made, items that will help before you go toe-to-toe with a master of the dungeon sword-to-sword. He's tough, but not relentless final boss with a skill of 10. And even the smallest additions to a fight make it feel a lot livelier, and it's very welcome here. There's nothing worse than fighting through a dungeon to find the big climax is just some dude with a high skill score. In general, this game book is actually fairly easy. Probably a little too easy. I beat it fairly handily on my second playthrough, and I didn't feel a huge amount of desire to go back and find the things I'd missed. It makes a pleasant change of pace to have a book that isn't utterly murderous, and if you're going to err on the difficulty scale, then I think easy is probably the slightly better option. I didn't feel like I'd been on a truly epic quest, but I didn't feel needlessly angry at any point either, which is just nice. I've said before that I think my favourite approach to difficulty is to allow anyone to make it through to the end and then incentivise going back to find the best route, Um, I really enjoyed the approach in Demons of the Deep where there's a bunch of pearls that you can find to uh, make the final confrontation easier and get a better outcome. I think that's 
the best way of doing it, and something like that in here would have been very enjoyable. I also don't mind if there's a few item checks at different points gating your progress, especially if you drop a few hints here and there for where the player might want to look. While there's some pleasure to be had from finding the items that you've missed that will make things easier in the latter stages, the difficulty being so low doesn't give you a strong desire to do it. You'd want to be a bit of a completist to go through this one with a fine-tooth comb. That said, I was very happy that the least interesting bit, the meat and potatoes dungeon of the Iron Crypt, doesn't have an item check at the end of it. It's the most complex bit topographically, and given my distaste for mapping, trying to explore it all would have been a real drag. I felt much better also about having a wander through it on the second playthrough, knowing that I was very likely to come out the other side, and that actually made me feel better disposed towards the Iron Crypts on that playthrough. I had the freedom to make different choices and have a slightly different adventure, because I knew there wasn't anything that I was going to pick up that was totally required to progress, and that's something that item gating does. It encourages a very conservative play style as soon as the player has found that item that is absolutely needed. Once I was free from the expectations, the middle section acted as a nice thematic break between the very well-realised island with its cast of oddballs and the darker and stranger final dungeon. In terms of constructing the story, it makes good sense and gives each element of the adventure its own identity. I would have liked more island, less dungeon, but that's just my personal taste. Fighting orcs and goblins in a maze of underground passages, that is a core role-playing experience, and saving the really imaginative stuff for the final act is almost always a good plan. Some elements haven't aged well, making the island natives black when there's not otherwise anyone of colour to interact with. That feels a bit regressive, but I doubt there was any malice involved just a writer grabbing at a well-used trope without thinking it through. The various orcs, goblins and trolls' speech being rendered phonetically is quite painful. I thought Bram Stoker's Dracula was the peak of ill-advised and poorly used phonetic transcription to emphasise class distinctions, but I think Keith Martin might be even worse. Again, I don't think Martin was consciously trying to use class signifiers, as a form of othering, any more than I think he was trying to use racial signifiers as a form of othering, but it does need to be highlighted that these are things which, certainly today, I would say you need to be doing your best to avoid, especially if you're not going to include any positive examples of people from other backgrounds to act as a counterweight. You can just end up reprising some slightly tired and grubby tropes. There is an interesting question about how you go about rendering the speech of monsters in a way that emphasises their crudeness and their violence without trampling all over ethnic and class stereotypes. And that's maybe something I'll think about for another episode. I don't have any good answers right now as to how you go about doing it. So hopefully, if I let it percolate through my brain a little bit, I'll be able to come up with something in a future episode as a way forward. Again, I'm sure other people have done brilliant work in moving away from these kind of stereotypes for orcs and goblins, but I'm not massively aware of their work. 
So hit me up if there's anything you think handles that sort of thing really well. Overall, though, I think Steeler of Souls is a decent first book from a guy who'll be popping up again and again over the next year or so. It's not doing anything experimental or surprising, but quite honestly, I was ready for something that was just cleaving to the established tropes of fantasy gaming. I like the established tropes of fantasy gaming, and it's always a pleasure to see them get a good quality airing. I can't imagine this is going to be anyone's favourite book in the series, and I can quite understand why I didn't remember anything about it, but honestly, by this point, just hitting the fundamentals actually feels surprisingly fresh and interesting because everyone seems to be so busy trying to iterate on the system and come up with clever stuff. I don't need to reprise how much I love Russ Nicholson's artwork at length, but it is of course fantastic. I think he's the perfect artist for fighting fantasy, and his contributions add so much depth to the world. So, Ross Nicholson, I salute you. That's all for this episode. I hope you'll join me again in April when I'm going to be tackling an absolute behemoth of a book for the bonus episode. It'll probably come out a little later than usual, but hopefully it will be worth the wait. If you want to get in touch with me in the meantime, you can do so by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. I've had a couple of lovely emails from listeners recently, and it really does make my day when I hear from people who are enjoying the show. Thanks very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.